Well, friends, we are in the third and final week here uh, of considering uh, this idea of justice, right? So we've just been looking at justice here for the past several weeks, and so we're going to continue to do that here for one more week. And as we do, uh, I think I've shared this with you in the past. I uh, grew up, I love track and field. Uh, I, I competed in it quite a bit. It was a big part of my life, high school into early college. Uh, the reason I say early college is it ended pretty swiftly when uh, things like the jumps did me in. Uh, so things like pole vaulting, uh, right? It's just absolutely terrifying. I could never figure it out. Uh, props to, to Caleb Johnson, uh, who uh, is a pretty world-class uh, pole vaulter there. Uh, also high jump. Uh, so for a while, I was pretty good at high jump. I was clearing six feet, but then I landed on the bar one time. It messed up my legs. And, and literally, there was this mental thing that happened in me that I couldn't clear like four foot six after that. Like I just dove underneath it. So anyway, but the events I loved, uh, I loved the 400 meters. Uh, I love the high hurdles, which is the sprint uh, version of the hurdles. And I love discus. Those are my favorite events. Well, uh, I, let me just throw this out to you. Uh, you know, I, I think I've shared with you about disc before. There was a, a guy who always beat me. He beat me like for four straight years. It was kind of miserable. It was frustrating uh, coming in second for four straight years. Uh, and then hurdles, there was another guy who beat me until literally the last race. But what if I went to my coach and I said, hey, coach, I got an idea. Um, I, I know how I can beat these guys. Put me on the outside lane for the hurdles, okay? And what's going to happen is when I get to the hurdles, I found that I can go a lot faster when I don't have to jump over anything. And so I'm just going to run along the outside, and I should probably beat those guys, right? Um, or in disc, coach, if I just had one more spin, I'm long, right? I could get it out there a little bit further. Like, one more spin, I'd be good. I know I'll go outside that little boundary of the circle that I'm supposed to stay in, but, you know, who's really paying attention, right? Uh, so what if I pitched that to my coach? How, how would he feel? How would he be coaching me in that moment? Well, he'd be like, well, you're insane, right? Because even, even though the end result would be uh, a further distance or a faster time, uh, you didn't do it the right way, right? Uh, you, you, you'd be disqualified, right? It, it all makes sense to us. Well, here's where we've been as we've talked about justice. We've talked about the basics of justice. You know, we started off, and it was really a journey on my part going, wow, we call everything justice, and we elevate so much to the level of it being a gospel issue. It felt like at some point eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich felt like a justice issue. And so how do we back the camera up a little bit and say, what are we talking about? And so we talked about these things. We said, you know, justice comes from a standard. We talked about the idea of righteousness. We said justice is derivative. It's something that uh, comes from another source. And, and if we claim to be a Christian, we are claiming uh, that justice comes from the source of the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we said because as God has put justice before us, he says, hey, justice means loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So uh, the term social justice, which sometimes can carry a bad meaning to it, uh, we need to just affirm as Christians that justice is always social because of the second part of that commandment. It involves other people. Last week was kind of the just do it version of, of talking about justice where we said, hey, God through Micah 6 showed us how we rest in the grace that he has made us his own people if we're followers of Jesus. And because we rest in that, he has called us to work out our faith in doing justice, right? Uh, do justice, um, uh, act kindly or with mercy and walk humbly with our God. So I say all that, but I also say this this week, and this is kind of the third and final, this is the third and final installment, that at the same time, while we are called to do justice, we're also called to do it truly or rightly. All right? 
So that's going to be the first part that we're going to look at this morning from Jeremiah 7. Uh, and it's this idea of true justice. So if you're following along in an outline, first point is true justice. Verses 5 to 7. Go ahead and read along with me. Oh, let me give you context. Hold on, hold on. Sorry, you're already looking up or down or wherever you were looking. The context of this is in the book of Jeremiah, God is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah to uh, Judah, which is one of the, the smaller groupings of tribes of Israel. So you had Israel, who uh, the larger grouping of tribes, which God sent into captivity, uh, into Assyrian captivity, because they weren't loving God, they were running after other idols, and they weren't loving their neighbor, they were oppressing them. And so God removed them from the land and, and brought them under captivity in Assyria. In Judah, uh, they're getting ready to go in exile. Here they haven't quite done so yet, but they're falling into the same traps, right? Following after other gods and, and, and oppressing one another. Now, they have an answer, right? God keeps calling them back to themselves. And they're like, hey, you know, we've got a solution for God. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep worshiping other gods. We're going to keep oppressing each other, but we're going to go to church on Sunday. Like, we're, we're going to go to church. Now, in their version, church was temple, right? They would they were going to go to temple. And that's what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, they're basically saying, but we're still coming to the temple. We're still offering our sacrifices. And then Jeremiah pushes back pretty hard on what they think is, hey, this checks the box and we can keep moving. So now we're going to read it, beginning in verse 5. Here's what Jeremiah says. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the immigrant, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. Let me pray for us, and we're going to keep moving here this morning. Well, Lord, <clears throat> I pray that you um, will use this time to make us those that not just pursue justice, but that we pursue justice that both honors you and loves our neighbor. There is a category where we can pursue a form of justice that actually does the opposite in every way, shape, and form. Lord, admittedly, this is difficult to discern in many situations, and so we just ask you this morning to give us your wisdom. And Father, I am certainly inadequate to, to cover all of the nuances and all the pain points, really, that my brothers and sisters, as they're listening, uh, are experiencing. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you uh, would cover, <clears throat> cover the deficiencies of what I'm able to cover, what I even say poorly. Uh, I pray that you would protect uh, my words uh, and Lord, I pray that we would all just, again, uh, walk humbly before you as we uh, tread on what feels to be tricky ground. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw us close to you and, and, and shape us, transform us as we look into your word here this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, the word I want to kind of double click on that we just read is the idea of truly. You saw that twice, right? Uh, it says in Verse 5, if you truly amend your ways and you truly execute justice with one another. Now, I think there's two aspects to what this truly here is getting at. First, I think it is talking about our hearts, right? And so even God's people here, they're like, oh, maybe for a week or so they stay away from the idols and they make that commitment to go to church. But, but like all of us, we find our, our hearts drifting back to other loves other than the God of the universe. And so I think a part of what he's talking about here in truly is he's addressing our hearts. Deuteronomy 10, uh, God says, hey, uh, circumcise your hearts in order to come before me, right? And so it's not just this outward expression of, of religion, even in the Old Testament, of circumcision that, that makes someone uh, come before God in a right way. 
And if you go forward into the book of Luke, first, uh, chapter 6, Jesus talks about, hey, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The fruit of our lives comes from our heart. So it, it's, it's, it's part of the Christian faith that the Holy Spirit has to do a work on our hearts, right? Uh, that we're constantly in a place of repentance and saying, I, I am unworthy and I need you to do a work. And so part of it, of the truly, is God saying your heart uh, needs to uh, be changed. But the other part of the truly that we see here, uh, I think, speaks to this reality, especially as it pertains to justice, that there is an, an actually an untrue way to do justice or a way to do justice that isn't right. And if you read down, I think he unpacks that some. You know, there are ways to do justice that still oppress the immigrant and the fatherless and the widow and still continues to shed innocent blood. Now, I'm going to reference a book a good bit. In fact, I won't even reference it most of the time, but you just need to understand that a lot of what comes out of today comes from this book. But I've intentionally saved this until the last sermon. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. It's by a a man named Thaddeus Williams. Uh, He's a professor at Biola University. Uh, And and the reason, well, let me just say this. As I say it out loud, I kind of, I do it tentatively. I don't know if it's a book that I would recommend to every single person in this room uh, to read, Uh, in part because I think he does do an excellent job with helping us think well through uh, what justice looks like, especially from a biblical standpoint. Uh, But we also live in a time where, man, people are just ferociously hungry for more ammunition to waylay the person who disagrees with them on a social justice issue. And, And so I just want to tread lightly here and say, read at your own risk, in a way, but be mindful of what's going on in your heart. I love, I mentioned it last week, Tim Keller's Generous Justice. It addresses the gospel and its impact on the heart. I love Rebecca McLaughlin and her uh, writing on justice and and her book, uh, Confronting Christianity and Secular Creed. And so I would commend those to you maybe a little bit before, but but this is an excellent book as well. And, And here's part of what he says in this book about justice. He says, there are ways of trying to make the world a better place that aren't in sync with reality and end up unleashing more havoc in the universe. And again, coming from his worldview, he is a follower of Jesus Christ. And when he says in sync with reality, he's talking about the reality that the creator God developed and put into place. And so he's saying there is a way that we can end up doing justice that unleashes more havoc in the universe. And so in a way, he's saying, hey, um, uh, there's a way of doing justice that is running around the hurdles, right? Uh, that, that can disqualify us in some ways, that is not honoring to God, that can end up being more oppressive. So here's the second point we're going to look at, and, and, and this is what the New Testament gives us as believers to consider the ways we do justice or pursue it. And it's this idea of testing everything. Testing everything. A number of years ago, me and my friends uh, just uh, were getting ready to graduate college. We did a cross-country trip. Uh, we were going to our summer assignments. Uh, I was headed to Northern California. And one of the things that I found out you have to do when you're in Northern California is pan for gold because Northern California, I guess it's a thing. I was a little grumpy because it was like a college guy. I'm like, I'm not sure panning for gold is on my list of things that I want to do today. But, but nevertheless, we went. And, and I, I got to be honest with you, like it's, it's kind of addicting. Um, you know, first time I, you know, grab some dirt and, 
you know, I'm sloshing it around in the pan. And, and when I started seeing that little glint of gold or potential gold, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm glad we stopped the pan for gold, right? Now, what I quickly learned is a lot of the glinty, shiny, yellowish things in there was uh, pyrite, I think it's called, which is called fool's gold. Uh, there's a lot of that in there. And so I learned that the way you kind of test or, or get rid of the fool's gold is you slosh it around at a certain, like it, it took time, right? A little bit of finesse, but the fool's gold was a little less dense than the gold was. And so the gold flakes would, would sink to the bottom, but the pyrite would kind of slosh out, right? And there's other ways that we figured out how to test it. And, and, and I just, you know, just sat there just carefully washed it around. And when we, when you found the thing, I asked the person, like, is this gold? Is this gold? Is this gold? It was like a golem moment, right? I was like, my precious. Like I grabbed the thing and I like put it over here. And we're not talking about gold nuggets that big around. We're talking about like a flake, like barely. It's like fish food. Like that's about the consistency of, of the gold I was finding. But by the end, I had all these little chunks of gold in a little vial. It was probably worth about 25 cents. It was amazing. But anyway, I digress. Here's, here's why I say this uh, under this category of test everything is in a way that panning for gold is a way of telling the difference between the fool's gold and the real gold. And it's very similar to what we see in the New Testament. Paul talking to the church in Thessalonica, he says, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. That's what I was doing while I was panning. I'm checking out all these little flakes. And when I found something that was gold, I'm holding fast to it. I'm protecting it. Similar verse, Romans 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And so, friends, there's an element of our faith where we are called continually to test, to find out the worth of something by putting it to use. Now, there's a couple of things that the Scripture, well, one thing that God warns us about, and another thing He tells us to develop in order to be able to test well. The first thing He warns us about is our eyes and the temptation of our eyes and our ears, really, He says here. He's talking about a person making judgment here. He says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. All right, did you get this? He's warning us about going with what our eyes first see or what our ears first hear. He's pointing to the reality that that sometimes our eyes want to see and our ears want to hear what it wants to hear. He said there's a standard outside of our own eyes and outside of our own ears that we have to lean on. And here it says, with righteousness. Jesus talks about something similar in John chapter 7. He is going around. He's beginning his earthly ministry. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. And there's a group of religious folks who come up to him and say, you're the devil. The devil is in you. He's like, why? And they said, because you heal on the Sabbath. How dare you? Now, what they're operating off of is this, is this line of religion that basically added laws to God's law. And in doing that, they said, hey, if you heal or help someone on the Sabbath, it's work and it's against God. And Jesus, knowing that that's what their eyes are actually looking for with him, he says this, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here's what this assumes. This assumes that, that there is a standard Right? That there is this truth that, going back to week one, that we actually need to be able to step back and evaluate and say, hey, it's not just what I see, it's not just what I hear. It's evaluating with a righteous mind, right? A mind that is laboring in the scriptures, what is right and what is wrong. So let me stop and just ask this question. Are there areas of justice 
that you may be pursuing that might not ring true to God's righteousness? Are there areas of justice that that you are pursuing or a way that you are pursuing it that may not ring true to God's righteousness, that you may be coming to a conclusion because of what you see or simply what you hear? Here's the second thing we look at. We talk about the eyes, but let's also talk about the mind because this is what God calls us to develop to be able to test and discern. Here's Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that first phrase is, is pretty important because it assumes that, that if we're pouring ourselves into the world, it's kind of like pouring ourselves into a jello mold, right? It's conforming us. It's shaping us. We may not even know it. You know, it, it is kind of frightening to think how much of our sense of justice is being shaped by things like TikTok, all right? Like, tops, you have 30 seconds to hear a very valid argument, right? That's how long you have, and I'm not saying it's truly valid, right? You just flip through, and you get to be like, hey, welcome to my channel. Uh, I want to just help you figure out how to, you know, bring justice to feral cats. You know, like, subscribe, namaste, right? And that's it. Like, there's, there's your... That has shaped our social justice. But, but honestly, we live in a culture where that's about the amount of time we give to it. We don't read books anymore, but, but sometimes those long-form arguments is what we need to sit and wrestle. And, and I would just also say this. I think what really the transforming of our minds uh, really entails is, is us sitting in God's Word and baking in it and begging the Lord to open our eyes to it by the power of the Holy Spirit and doing it in a community in the diversity of the body of Christ. I think that's when our minds begin to get renewed and transformed because the only truth that if we are, again, claiming to be a follower of Christ, that we are given in God's revelation is His Word, the Bible. Now, a couple qualifiers. Uh, if, if, <laughs> if you think that, okay, well, here, Anthony's going to give me five bullet points about the Bible, or I'm just going to go read about five verses. I'm going to nail and have every social justice issue worked out, uh, you know, this weekend. You're wrong, right? There's a reason why James 1 says, if you lack wisdom, come to me and ask, and I give generously to all without finding fault. Because it's hard, and we can't even with a human mind land the plane all the time on exactly what perfect justice is. That's why we have to rely on the justice giver himself. So as we talk about the minds, I'm going to give you two dangers, right? Two ditches that I see as we wrestle this out. And, and here's the first ditch. And, you know, in the Reformed thinking communities, this is a Reformed church. If you don't even know what that is, just bear with me for those of you who do. Uh, here, here's the pro of Reformed thinking. We, we th- tend to think well in Reformed traditions, and I think that's uh, helped the church a good bit, protect from evil, right, uh, and apostasy. At the same time, uh, we can be guilty of the paralysis of analysis, Right? It's like riding a bike. It's like, well, I'm going to ride a bike. I'm going to read five books on riding a bike. I'm going to take a biomechanics and physiology class about riding a bike. I'm really going to study it hard. And, and you know, maybe I'll get get on the bike, right? Like, that's where you just kind of need to get is quit studying and thinking and, and, and attempt test, right, some of these things and participate in some form of justice, even if you haven't 100% landed the plane on whether or not it's helping that's hurting and so on and so forth. Here's a second danger is we have this intellect versus emotion competition 
where we, t- we tend to sometimes say uh, intellect is the most important and most holy thing to develop, or our emotional ability and, and, and intelligence is the most important thing to develop. And, and I would just say we're inappropriately pitting the two against each other. I think the Psalms tells us that God wants us to take the raw materials of our emotion and shape them in a Godward way. And I think what we just read in the book of Romans is saying God wants to also take our minds and shape them in a Godward way. Here's, here's the first ditch where folks often say the intellect is more holy. I think it tends to stunt uh, the righteous emotional response in certain situations. If we overdo that, we can fall into that ditch. Now, this will be probably one of the more controversial things I say uh, during the sermon. I know it's great when I front load something like that. Y'all are just like, oh, here we go. Ready? But, but I'm going to say it, and, and, and I'm taking this angle intentionally, uh, but, but when we walked through a lot of the George Floyd and a lot of the violence against uh, our Asian brothers and sisters, and, and, and you heard the cry, Black Lives Matter, right? You know, for some, it was a political cry, and I think that's a conversation for another day. But I think for especially many, not all, but many of my friends of color, it was a cry of grief. And early on, it broke my heart when I heard my white brother and sisters approach them and say, no, blank lives matter. You may strongly disagree with me, and I'm okay if you don't, if you do. But in a way, I think that's indicative of us raising the intellectual above an emotional response. I think it's actually pretty emotionally unintelligent in that moment because we fail to grieve with those who are actually grieving. They're grieving. And when we walk in like that, we we just dismiss it. Are you thinking, well, maybe... I pray we grow to response like, respond like Jesus did at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. You know, Lazarus died. His sisters, Mary and Martha, they come running up to him. And I get this sense they're almost pounding on his chest. Martha's like, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Did Jesus go, how dare you talk to me? I am a rabbi. Get it right. Now with Martha, he took a different tack. He did teach a little bit. He said, Do you, your brother will live again. I know he will. On the day of the resurrection, your brother will live again. And then he demonstrated it. But Mary, he approached much differently. She did the same thing. And you know what he did? He turned, he looked at the tomb of his friend, and he wept. I just pray that we learn to grow in our emotional responses to one another, to read the room, to know the moment, and to not think, well, I have the right answer, so I'm going to respond with the right answer rather than let me just get down into the ashes with you and cry. Here's the flip side of that. The other ditch is when we have an imbalance on the emotional. We will over-empathize empathy to a fault. We'll be so caught up with, I can't, I can't talk about this person. Maybe time has gone by. We can talk about maybe some of the flaws in a political movement or whatever it is. But, but it, it, at some point, empathy also can't be our God or our ultimate. But we have to enter into saying, hey, all right, let's talk about at an intellectual standpoint, some of the things that are honoring the God about this and the things that aren't. We need God's wisdom to do that. And please don't hear me speaking against empathy. It's kind of like feels evil to say anything against the word empathy in our culture, right? The most empathetic movement in all of human history is Jesus putting on flesh and coming to dwell among us. So I'm not telling us don't be empathetic, right? But I'm just warning us that those are the two ditches that I see. 
Now, they've got to click it into a different gear. So I'm skipping a whole point. Some of you are like, amen. Thank you for skipping that point. Here, <laughs> let me just skip to this last segment because I, I want to give us just some tests. So as we venture into and wade into the waters of social justice, we, we, we really are able to ask some diagnostic tests to go, okay, like might this align with God's word or, or could this be going in a different direction? Uh, here's the first test. This is the worship test. The worship test. Here's the verse I want to kind of springboard off of. Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. The worship test. Here's what I mean by this. Um, The worship test means uh, us asking the question, am I bowing down to something worth bowing down to? You know, the worship test isn't just a justice issue. It's actually the justice issue that all other justice issues flows from. Let me give you an example of this. 1519, a Spanish conquistador named uh, Herman Cortes, right? He goes into Mexico City. This is the um, capital of the Aztec Empire. There's a temple on the horizon that's really the most prominent building, and there's two pieces to it. There's one uh, dedicated to the sun god and one dedicated to the water god. And and, and what you find is in the portion of the sun god, here's what happened. They cut out the hearts of tens of thousands of people, put them on stakes and lit them on fire and burned them in sacrifice to their sun god. There are 60,000 skulls at the base of one wall that was part of some sort of sacrificial ceremony. On the water side of things, there were uh, tens of thousands of bodies of children that were found, and, and they were thought to be sacrificed because their tears were honoring to this water god and found to have a lot of power. And so, friends, there is injustice that flowed from a misguided sense of worship. Now, what's the other side of the ball? These conquistadors who came in, some of them waving the flag of the church into this people group, and and what has been said about them is that they took it all. Everything they saw fit to take, the land, the money, the people, they took it. One person said, this is what happens when fallen people play God and call themselves a sovereign Lord. This is when we worship money and power and fame. Social justice is first and foremost a matter of misplaced worship, at least when there is injustice. Here's some diagnostic questions. I'm borrowing these from Williams. They're going to be on the website. If you go into the sermon notes, they'll be there. But we need These are three great diagnostic questions. God question. Does our form of social justice take the godhood of God seriously? That means, are we starting with God? Here's the second one, the imago question, the imago dei, the image of God. Right? If, if God is the ultimate and we are all made in his image, then there is equal value in every single human because that value comes in us being made in his image. So does our version of social justice acknowledge the image of God in everyone, regardless of size, shade, sex, or status? And here's the idle question. Does it make a false god out of the self, the state, or social acceptance? Here's a second test. This is the community test. And here's the verse, verses I want to jump off of here briefly. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in its flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, the Bible holds that we're in one of two camps. We're either in Adam, separated from God relationally and deserving of his justice and punishment, or we are in Jesus Christ, redeemed on no value of our own and no merit, but simply by his grace. 
And when he brings us close to himself, when he saves us, he saves us into a new family. And we are a very diverse bunch. In the 20th century, there was one bad idea that led to the killing of 100 million people. It fueled the smokestacks of Auschwitz, the gulags of Siberia, the killing fields of Khmer Rouge, the butchery of those in Rwanda, Darfur, and Congo, and it should be rejected. And it's making a comeback. You know what it is? It's tribalism. You know what tribalism is? It's the idea that we should divide people into group identities, then assign undesirable or evil traits to that group in such a way that we do not see the unique image of God in those image bearers. It's saying, I am Aryan, I am good, you are Jewish, you are bad. I am Brahmin, I am good, you are untouchable, you are bad. I am a Hutu, I am good, you are a Tutsi, and you are bad. I am white, I am good, you are black, you are bad. I am Islamic State, I am good, you are an infidel, you are bad. Now one person told me to tread carefully here in second service because he felt like I was drawing a pretty thick thread between the death of 100 million people and some of the tribalism that we see today. We disagreed just a touch, but I think the tribalism that we're seeing today could be leading us in some of these similar directions. Can I give you a couple of the categories? I am a viable person. You are a zygote, an embryo, a fetus or fetal tissue, and you are bad and you are disposable. How about this? I trust science. You're a conspiracy theorist. I am a truth seeker. You are a part of the woke mob. And friends, I, I'm guilty of some of these categories where we call people fascists or Marxists. You know what political category I'm speaking of there. Or we speak of people as the Dems or the Libs or the Trumpers. It's tribalism. It's tribalism. It's a bad trajectory. It's a repentable trajectory. What fixes this? Well, for Christians, it's us saying, I was in Adam, and now I'm in Christ, and I'm in Christ with you, and let's follow Jesus together. Here's a final one. Oh, let me ask you, here's, here's the community questions. Whoop, whoop. There we go. The collective questions. Does our vision of social justice take any group identity more seriously than our identities of in Adam or in Christ? The splintering questions. Does it buy into divisive propaganda? The fruit question. Does it replace love, peace, and patience with suspicion, division, and rage? Last one. The salvation test. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Paul is telling us we need to keep first things first and second things second. Our starting point is the fact that we have received Christ having died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. When we begin to make a justice issue the primary issue, we are actually adding to the gospel, and the good news becomes bad news. We become racked with guilt and shame because we will never meet his category of perfect justice. Never. And you know what happens when we begin to feel that? 
we become tribal. We become self-righteous. I am better at this form of justice than you, and you are not worthy of my time or energy. That's a sure sign that we have lost track of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have replaced it with another form of the gospel. And so, friends, there is justice that can be done truly. May he give us the grace to wrestle well in community with one another, and as we rest on this grace and keep first things first and second things second. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, maybe at the end of this, the emotion I'm feeling is help. Lord, it's help. Because as I say these things, I see my own deficiencies. I see where I have not been transformed with the renewing of my mind, where I have become tribal myself. Lord, where I've just taken on a posture of suspicion. And Lord, where I've lost track of the gospel. Father, forgive us where we have made something or tried to make something more beautiful than the grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as a church, as we rest in your grace, that we will grow in our ability to do justice truly and righteously in a way that honors and loves you and loves our neighbor. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.